This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, due to the coronavirus lockdown, we weren't able to proceed with our planned guest, so we're changing the format a little. I've chosen a story to read, and I asked listeners to submit questions for me to discuss through our Twitter and Facebook pages. The story I've chosen is Good People by David Foster Wallace, which was published in The New Yorker in January of 2007. All the different angles and ways they had come at the decision together did not ever include it, the word. For had he once said it, avowed that he did love her, loved Sherry Fisher, then it all would have been transformed. It would not be a different stance or angle, but a difference in the very thing they were praying and deciding on together. I chose this story in part because it was the last piece that I worked on with David Foster Wallace before his death in 2008, and because our correspondence about the story stayed very vividly in my memory and came to mind when he died. The story was eventually part of The Pale King, David Foster Wallace's posthumous novel, which was published in 2011. At the time that he sent it to me in December of 2006, though, I'm not sure that he knew it was going to end up as part of the novel he was working on. It may have been a separate story then, or it might have been an outtake that he wasn't planning to include. In his note to me, he identified it as a short fiction submission. But the fact that the story is, in a sense, a rethinking of Hemingway's 1927 story, Hills Like White Elephants, also makes me suspect that it was first written as a self-contained piece. In Wallace's story and in Hemingway's, a young couple for whom it would not be convenient to have a baby talk awkwardly around the idea of abortion without ever using the word. In the Wallace story, unlike in the Hemingway, the young couple are devout Christians who have to grapple with the concept from that point of view as well, as you will hear. I'll be talking some more after the story, but now here's Good People by David Foster Wallace. Good People They were up on a picnic table at that park by the lake, by the edge of the lake, with part of a downed tree in the shallows half hidden by the bank. Lane A. Dean, Jr. and his girlfriend, both in blue jeans and button-up shirts. They sat up on the table's top portion and had their shoes on the bench part that people sat on to picnic or fellowship together in carefree times. They'd gone to different high schools but the same junior college where they had met in campus ministries. It was springtime and the park's grass was very green and the air suffused with honeysuckle and lilacs both, which was almost too much. There were bees, and the angle of the sun made the water of the shallows look dark. There had been more storms that week, with some downed trees and the sound of chainsaws all up and down his parents' street. Their postures on the picnic table were both the same forward kind, with their shoulders rounded and elbows on their knees. In this position the girl rocked slightly and once put her face in her hands, but she was not crying. Lane was very still and immobile, and looking past the bank at the downed tree in the shallows and its ball of exposed roots going all directions, and the tree's cloud of branches all half in the water. The only other individual nearby was a dozen spaced tables away, by himself, standing upright, looking at the torn-up hole in the ground, there where the tree had gone over. It was still early yet, and all the shadows wheeling right and shortening. The girl wore a thin old checked cotton shirt with pearl-colored snaps with the long sleeves down, and always smelled very good and clean, like someone you could trust and care about, even if you weren't in love. Lane Dean had liked the smell of her right away. His mother called her down to earth and liked her, 
Thought she was good people, you could tell. She made this evident in little ways. The shallows lapped from different directions at the tree as if almost teething on it. Sometimes, when alone and thinking, or struggling to turn a matter over to Jesus Christ in prayer, he would find himself putting his fist in his palm and turning it slightly, as if still playing and pounding his glove to stay sharp and alert in center. He did not do this now. It would be cruel and indecent to do this now. The older individual stood beside his picnic table. He was at it, but not sitting, and looked also out of place in a suit coat or jacket, and the kind of men's hat Lane's grandfather wore in photos as a young insurance man. He appeared to be looking across the lake. If he moved, Lane didn't see it. He looked more like a picture than a man. There were not any ducks in view. One thing Lane Dean did was reassure her again that he'd go with her and be there with her. It was one of the few safe or decent things he could really say. The second time he said it again, now, she shook her head and laughed in an unhappy way that was more just air out her nose. Her real laugh was different. Where he'd be was the waiting room, she said. That he'd be thinking about her and feeling bad for her, she knew, but he couldn't be in there with her. This was so obviously true that he felt like a ninny that he'd kept on about it, and now knew what she had thought every time he went and said it. It hadn't brought her comfort or eased the burden at all. The worse he felt, the stiller he sat. The whole thing felt balanced on a knife or wire. If he moved to put his arm up or touch her, the whole thing could tip over. He hated himself for sitting so frozen. He could almost visualize himself tiptoeing past something explosive. A big, stupid-looking tiptoe, like in a cartoon. The whole last black week had been this way, and it was wrong. He knew it was wrong. Knew something was required of him that was not this terrible frozen care and caution. But he pretended to himself he did not know what it was that was required. He pretended it had no name. He pretended that not saying aloud what he knew to be right and true was for her sake, was for the sake of her needs and feelings. He also worked dock and routing at UPS on top of school, but had traded to get the day off after they'd decided together. Two days before, he had awakened very early and tried to pray, but could not. He was freezing more and more solid, he felt like. But he had not thought of his father, or the blank frozenness of his father, even in church, which had once filled him with such pity. This was the truth. Lane Dean, Jr. felt sun on one arm as he pictured in his mind an image of himself on a train, waving mechanically to something that got smaller and smaller as the train pulled away. His father and his mother's father had the same birthday, a cancer. Sherry's hair was colored and almost corn blonde, very clean, the skin through her central part pink in the sunlight. They'd sat here long enough that only their right side was shaded now. He could look at her head, but not at her. Different parts of him felt unconnected to each other. She was smarter than him, and they both knew it. It wasn't just school. Lane Dean was in accounting and business and did all right. He was hanging in there. She was a year older, twenty, but it was also more. She had always seemed to Lane to be on good terms with her life in a way that age could not account for. His mother had put it that she knew what it is she wanted, which was nursing, and not an easy program at Peoria Junior College. And plus she worked hostessing at the Embers and had bought her own car. She was serious in a way Lane liked. She had a cousin that died when she was 13, 14 that she'd loved and been close with. She only talked about it that once. He liked her smell and her downy arms and the way she exclaimed when something made her laugh. 
He'd like just being with her and talking to her. She was serious in her faith and values in a way that Lane had liked, and now, sitting here with her on the table, found himself afraid of. This was an awful thing. He was starting to believe that he might not be serious in his faith. He might be somewhat of a hypocrite, like the Assyrians in Isaiah, which would be a far graver sin than the appointment. He had decided he believed this. He was desperate to be good people, to still be able to feel he was good. He rarely before now had thought of damnation and hell. That part of it didn't speak to his spirit. And in worship services, he more just tuned himself out and tolerated hell when it came up, the same way you tolerate the job you've got to have to save up for what it is you want. Her tennis shoes had little things doodled on them from sitting in her class lectures. She stayed looking down like that. Little notes or reading assignments in Bic and her neat round hand on the rubber elements around the sneaker's rim. Lane A. Dean, looking now at her inclined head sides barrettes in the shape of blue ladybugs. The appointment was for afternoon, but when the doorbell had rung so early and his mother had called to him up the stairs he had known, and a terrible kind of blankness had commenced falling through him. He told her that he did not know what to do, that he knew if he was the salesman of it and forced it upon her, that was awful and wrong, but he was trying to understand. They'd prayed on it and talked it through from every different angle. Lane said how sorry she knew he was, and that if he was wrong in believing they'd truly decided together when they decided to make the appointment, she should please tell him, because he thought he knew how she must have felt as it got closer and closer and how she must be so scared, but that what he couldn't tell was if it was more than that. He was totally still except for moving his mouth, it felt like. She did not reply. That if they needed to pray on it more and talk it through, then he was here, he was ready, he said. The appointment could get moved back. If she just said the word, they could call and push it back to take more time to be sure in the decision. It was still so early in it, they both knew that, he said. This was true, that he felt this way, and yet he also knew he was also trying to say things that would get her to open up and say enough back that he could see her and read her heart and know what to say to get her to go through with it. He knew this without admitting to himself that this was what he wanted, for it would make him a hypocrite and liar. He knew in some locked-up little part of him why it was that he'd gone to no one to open up and seek their life counsel. Not Pastor Steve or the prayer partners at Campus Ministries. Not his UPS friends or the spiritual counseling available through his parents' old church. But he did not know why Sherry herself had not gone to Pastor Steve. He could not read her heart. She was blank and hidden. He so fervently wished it never happened. He felt like he knew now why it was a true sin and not just a leftover rule from past society. He felt like he had been brought low by it, and humbled, and now did believe that the rules were there for a reason, that the rules were concerned with him personally as an individual. He promised God he had learned his lesson. But what if that too was a hollow promise from a hypocrite who repented only after, who promised submission but really only wanted a reprieve? He might not even know his own heart or be able to read and know himself. He kept thinking also of one Timothy and the hypocrite therein who disputeth over words. He felt a terrible inner resistance, but could not feel what it was that it resisted. This was the truth. All the different angles and ways they had come at the decision together did not ever include it, the word. For had he once said it, avowed that he did love her, loved Sherry Fisher, then it all would have been transformed. 
It would not be a different stance or angle, but a difference in the very thing they were praying and deciding on together. Sometimes they had prayed together over the phone in a kind of half-code in case anybody accidentally picked up the extension. She continued to sit as if thinking, in the pose of thinking, like that one statue. They were right up next to each other on the table. He was looking over past her at the tree in the water. But he could not say he did. It was not true. But neither did he ever open up and tell her straight out he did not love her. This might be his lie by omission. This might be the frozen resistance. Were he to look right at her and tell her he didn't, she would keep the appointment and go. He knew this. Something in him, though, some terrible weakness or lack of values could not tell her. It felt like a muscle he did not have. He didn't know why. He just could not do it, or even pray to do it. She believed he was good, serious in his values. Part of him seemed willing to more or less just about lie to someone with that kind of faith and trust, and what did that make him? How could such a type of individual even pray? What it really felt like was a taste of the reality of what might be meant by hell. Lane Dean had never believed in hell as a lake of fire, or a loving God consigning folks to a burning lake of fire. He knew in his heart this was not true. What he believed in was a living God of compassion and love, and the possibility of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, through whom this love was enacted in human time. But sitting here beside this girl, as unknown to him now as outer space, waiting for whatever she might say to unfreeze him, now he felt like he could see the edge or outline of what a real vision of hell might be. It was of two great and terrible armies within himself, opposed and facing each other, silent. There would be battle, but no victor. Or never a battle. The armies would stay like that, motionless, looking across at each other and seeing therein something so different and alien from themselves that they could not understand, could not hear each other's speech as even words, or read anything from what their face looked like, frozen like that, opposed and uncomprehending for all human time. Two-hearted, a hypocrite to yourself either way. When he moved his head, a part of the lake further out flashed with sun. The water up close wasn't black now, and you could see into the shallows, and see that all the water was moving, but gently, this way and that. And in the same way he besought to return to himself, as Sherry moved her leg and started to turn beside him. He could see the man in the suit and grey hat standing motionless now at the lake's rim, holding something under one arm, and looking across at the opposite side, where a row of little forms on camp chairs sat in a way that meant they had lines in the water for crappy, which mostly only your blacks from the east side ever did, and the little white shape at the rose end, a styrofoam creel. In his moment or time at the lake, now just to come, Lane Dean first felt he could take this all in whole. Everything seemed distinctly lit, for the circle of the pin oak's shade had rotated off all the way, and they sat now in sun with their shadow a two-headed thing in the grass before them. He was looking or gazing again at where the downed tree's branches seemed to all bend so sharply just under the shallow's surface, when he was given to know that through all this frozen silence he despised, he had in truth been praying, or some little part of his heart he could not hear had, for he was answered now with a type of vision, what he would later call within his own mind a vision or moment of grace. He was not a hypocrite, just broken and split off like all men. 
Later on, he believed that what happened was he'd had a moment of almost seeing them both as Jesus saw them, as blind but groping, wanting to please God despite their inborn fallen nature. For in that same moment he saw, quick as a light, into Sherry's heart, and was made to know what would occur here as she finished turning to him, and the man in the hat watched the fishing, and the downed elm shed cells into the water. This down-to-earth girl that smelled good and wanted to be a nurse would take and hold one of his hands in both of hers to unfreeze him and make him look at her. And she would say that she cannot do it, that she is sorry she did not know this sooner, that she hadn't meant to lie. She agreed because she'd wanted to believe that she could, but she cannot. That she will carry this and have it, she has to, with her gaze clear and steady, that all night last night she prayed and searched inside herself and decided this is what love commands of her. That Lane should please, please, sweetie, let her finish. That listen, this is her own decision and obliges him to nothing. That she knows he does not love her, not that way, has known it all this time, and that it's all right, that it is as it is, and it's all right. She will carry this and have it and love it and make no claim on Lane except his good wishes in respecting what she has to do that she releases him, all claim, and hopes he finishes up at PJC and does so good in his life and has all joy and good things. Her voice will be clear and steady, and she will be lying, for Lane has been given to read her heart, to see through her. One of the opposite side's blacks raises his arm in what may be greeting or waving off a bee. There is a mower cutting grass someplace off behind them. It will be a terrible, last-ditch gamble born out of the desperation in Cherry Fisher's soul. The knowledge that she can neither do this thing today nor carry a child alone and shame her family. Her values blocked the way either way Lane could see, and she has no other options or choice. This lie is not a sin. Galatians 4.16 Have I then become your enemy? She is gambling that he is good. There on the table, neither frozen nor yet moving, Lane Dean Jr. sees all this, and is moved with pity, and also with something more, something without any name he knows, that is given to him in the form of a question that never once in all the long weeks thinking and division had even so much as occurred. Why is he so sure he doesn't love her? Why is one kind of love any different? What if he has no earthly idea what love is? What would even Jesus do? For it was just now he felt her two small, strong, soft hands on his to turn him. What if he was just afraid, if the truth was no more than this, and if what to pray for was not even love, but simple courage to meet both her eyes as she says it, and trust his heart? That Was Good People by David Foster Wallace, which appeared in The New Yorker in January of 2007, and became part of his posthumous novel, The Pale King, which was published by Little Brown in 2011. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent, 
slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So as I said earlier, the story clearly draws on Hemingway's 1927 story, Hills Like White Elephants. But whereas in the Hemingway story, the couple has a discussion of what to do, a verbal exchange, in this story, the discussion happens only in Lane's mind. He anticipates what Sherry's going to say to him after the story ends, but we have no way to know for sure that he's guessed or intuited that correctly. Uh, He also anticipates having a change of heart himself. He asks himself if he's wrong and if the love he feels for Sherry is the right kind of love after all, and therefore perhaps it would be the right decision to get married and keep the baby. But we, or, or at least I, leave the story not completely convinced of anything, or not completely convinced that Lane is convinced of anything. It's all just a parade of thoughts and questions in his changing mind. So no decision is reached in the timeline of the story. I'm interested in the way that Wallace slips into Lane's consciousness. You know, the story opens with some general, omniscient-seeming description. We see the couple from a distance sitting on this picnic table. We see the lake and the park and the position they're sitting in. And then we get this sentence. The girl wore a thin, old, checked cotton shirt with pearl-colored snaps with the long sleeves down and always smelled very good and clean, like someone you could trust and care about, even if you weren't in love. And now we're in Lane's mind and Lane's talking to himself and acknowledging his feelings about his girlfriend. In Hemingway's story, most of the revelations come through dialogue. We guess at the characters' feelings through what they say to each other. So why do we think that Wallace translated that kind of verbal sparring into this internal, silent, frozen form of sparring in which Lane is at war with himself? The story's full of doubling. Lane is constantly split in half metaphorically and divided emotionally. He's the man who wants to live up to his faith and marry the woman he's impregnated and be, as he puts it, good people. And at the same time, he's the man who got his girlfriend pregnant, even though he knew he didn't really love her enough to get married. And now he's desperate for her to have an abortion so that he doesn't have to own his mistake. He's also desperate not to seem desperate for her to have the abortion, so he's, he's fighting himself on many levels. He is as he sees himself, the man on the train who's waving and waving to something that gets smaller in the distance, but he's also the person back on the platform. He's the man who stays and takes responsibility and watches the man he wishes he could be right away. So Lane feels he has these two armies inside him, armies that can't even go to war. There's no triumph or victory. They're just going to sit there on opposite sides, staring at each other in this kind of standoff. Um, which he sort of imagines taking the rest of his life. And it's important for his faith in Christian doctrine that he sees himself as a hypocrite. No matter what he decides, he'll be lying or betraying the other half of himself. So why do we get this in the form of an internal monologue? Why did Wallace not let this come out through conversation in the way that Hemingway did? Hemingway's characters spar and talk around the problem they're facing, They don't address it directly, but you can guess at their wishes and and their personalities if you just listen between the lines of the dialogue. 
But Lane is completely alone with this dilemma. He doesn't feel he can share his real feelings with Sherry. He can't share them with God. He can't share them with Pastor Steve. He can't be honest with himself or with anyone. So what can he do with them? So he has to be himself. He also has to be his pastor. He has to be God. He has to inhabit this external moral judge, perhaps, or external friend who might encourage him to abandon her. Um, and he has to play those big roles. So I wanted to address um, some of the questions that were sent in by listeners. And the first one came from Jamie Redgate, who asked, do you think the love at the end of the story is a true love or a self-delusion or both? Is it more meaningful because Lane Dean is trying to feel it despite himself or just sad? So that's the big question, isn't it? How do we know whether to believe Lane's change of heart? Is he suddenly becoming aware of feelings that he buried because they weren't convenient? Or is he telling himself that he feels those things in order to convince himself to do the right thing? I'm not quite sure that we can know that, or that Wallace wanted us to know the answer to that question when he wrote the story. At the same time, he does allow Lane to describe this moment as a moment of grace. You know, he was answered now with a type of vision, what he would later call within his own mind a vision or a moment of grace. And that moment of grace allows him to stop seeing himself as a hypocrite and to reconcile him to doing the right thing and to put together the two halves that have been fighting and become whole. And as you'll hear in a minute, Wallace's fear with this story was that he was allowing himself to be too sentimental. And that, to me, indicates that he believed in this change of heart and felt it was true to Lane. So I have another question, which is from Jesse at Tweets of Jesse. And he asked, how does reading the story by itself compare to reading it in the context of The Pale King, where it was later included? So, yeah, I do read it in a different context now than I did back in 2007. And, in fact, The New Yorker ran an excerpt from The Pale King in 2009, which was called Wiggle Room, in which Lane Dean is married to Sherry, they have a baby boy, and he's working for the IRS and bored out of his mind to the point of existential despair. Bored by his job, not so much by, by his wife and family. So, at that point... You know, of course, I was pretty sure that the decision that Lane makes at the end of Good People held and that he does marry Sherry and have the baby. And it changes the way that I read Good People in the sense that the outcome is no longer in doubt. But I don't know if Wallace envisioned that future for Dean when he wrote this part. I don't know which part of the book was written first. And, you know, as I said earlier, I think that when he first sent me Good People, he was thinking of it as a story and, and not a chapter of something bigger. So for this purpose, I tried not to think about that context and just to appreciate what's on the page here. And I have another question from Amy Wilkinson, who asks, what do you think is going on with the older individual a dozen tables over, the stranger Lane's gaze lands on again and again? This description strikes me as especially interesting. He looked more like a picture than a man. What do you think his role is in the story? So I've thought about this a little bit. Um, since Lane is so endlessly divided and doubled in the story, I wondered if that older man lurking a few tables away was, was meant to be a kind of double for him, perhaps a sort of projection of his future self who's there to reassure him or advise him somehow. At the same time, the man keeps looking across the lake. He doesn't look at Lane. He's looking at the fisherman on the other side, whom Lane refers to as Blacks, which is 
probably a pretty standard thing for the community he's grown up in. And it's it, the way I read it, it's not necessarily about discriminating, but it's about making a distinction, making it clear that he thinks of them as other and, and not like himself. So perhaps that man is there to make him think about or aware of otherness, of other possibilities, of the life that's happening on the other side of this lake, of the other side of this divide. You know, it, it may all be quite different from what's on this side. Also, he could be there as a kind of makeshift father figure, a stand-in for Lane's father, who is described as, as blank and frozen, or a stand-in for Pastor Steve. He's wearing the kind of hat that Lane's grandfather wore as a young insurance man. Lane is studying accounting at the business school, and it's not hard to imagine him. It's not hard to imagine him imagining ending up more or less like his grandfather. So is that man there to remind Lane of that? Is he there to rescue him? Is he there as sort of a disapproving figure? I don't, I don't really have an answer to the question, except to say that in the line that Amy notes, that he's, he's more of a picture than a man, he's more like a picture than a man, Wallace seems to be hinting to us that this man is more of a vision or a projection of something than an actual person. And the next question is from Nathan Oates. He writes, There's a completely unexpected, non-linear sentence in the story in which Lane's imagining himself on a train, waving mechanically to something that got smaller and smaller. Right on the heels of that, Wallace writes, His father and his mother's father had the same birthday, a cancer. Wallace's story, as is often true of his work, is rich in detail and sentences that could perhaps be considered extraneous. How much back and forth was there when it came to making cuts and deciding what to keep? So first, when reading this question, I'm, I'm thrown back to that image of in which Lane sees himself as a man on a train waving at something that's getting smaller. Um, because, of course, that's, uh, that's the opposite of what a baby does in utero. It gets bigger and bigger until it's born, and then it's completely in the foreground. And after an abortion you know, a pregnancy gets smaller and smaller and whatever growth there was is reversed. So I'm seeing that line as a kind of double metaphor for the situation that's happening. Um, but to get to the question about our editorial process, Wallace was incredibly precise about what he wanted and he was very resistant to the idea of changing a draft once he was happy with it. So I, I always kind of Imagine that he felt when, when writing fiction as if he were building a house of cards, and if you suggested taking one card away, the whole thing was going to collapse. So editing was usually a very involved process um, in which everything had to be talked through. Uh, that said, we did make a number of edits to this story, and uh, as I think I said earlier, our emails about it stayed in my mind. And before we were uh, put on lockdown here in New York City, I was able to go to my office and retrieve my printouts of that exchange. So it might be helpful in understanding the story if I read some pieces of what Wallace had to say about it. When I sent him a first edit of the story, he wrote back and said in part, I've been very slow and hopefully very thorough. I ended up taking a lot more of your edits than I'd initially thought. In some places, I didn't exactly, but redid a phrase or clause in a different way. Basically, I have taken edits or made changes that will, hopefully, enhance readability and mitigate confusion, while at the same time preserving a certain not-all-that-well-educated-but-earnest-young-Midwest-Christian voice, which I fully concede is awkward at times, but is, in this piece, the best and only way 
to make the reader intimate enough with the guy so that she'll swallow the rather large and to me scarily emotional and earnest epiphanies he has at the end. So that, for one thing, I think tells us that in Wallace's mind, um, Lane believes in what he's saying at the very end of the story, whether or not it turns out to be true. Um, it is for Lane an emotional epiphany. So another thing that Wallace mentioned was that Good People wasn't his first title for this story. He writes, I'd originally had one or two sentences about trees filled with sap in the park to go along with all the not-too-subtle greenery and bees and general fecundity of springtime, and the piece's title was Sap. I decided that this was craven in a particularly pomo way, viz. teasing the reader with the possibility that the title applied to Lane and that the author maybe saw him as sappy, which I suppose I do in some ways, and was sneering at him, which I am not. So I gave the piece a title in which the possibility of irony slash mockery slash sneering was much, much more remote, though not, I suppose, impossible. That note for me confirms something that I generally felt about Wallace's writing, that he tried to be completely, sometimes brutally honest about his characters, which meant presenting all of their weaknesses and hypocrisies and doubts and moral flaws, but he was never mocking them or making fun. And I do think that he genuinely cared about Lane, and about Sherry, maybe especially about Sherry, who in this story is not divided or doubled. She's very much a whole person, and she's referred to as whole. On the other hand, she represents, or she is, two people because she's pregnant with another person, but, but she's two whole good people. In our next exchange, Wallace wrote, I'm curious how you felt about my little rant about Sap as the initial title. Did it make sense? Do you agree? I myself am now totally confused. Does the title Good People threaten to make the story seem too close to sentimental, especially now with the nakedly cliché heart reference in the final line? My own terror of appearing sentimental is so strong that I've decided to fight against it some. But the terror is still there. It's gotten worse since you decided to run the story, which, to be honest, I thought there was about a 10% chance of when I sent it to you. I don't mind the piece flirting with sentimentality or complicating the question of what's sentimental, but the terror is there. What do you think about all this? Do you identify with a distaste slash fear about sentimentality? Do you agree that past a certain line, such distaste can turn everything arch and sneering and too ironic? Or do you have your own set of abstract questions to drive yourself nuts with? Well, I'm sorry that I never had a chance to have David Foster Wallace as a guest on this podcast, but it has been a pleasure to have him here in spirit. Thank you so much to the people who wrote in with questions, and thank you to everyone for listening. Stay well. David Foster Wallace, who died in 2008, was the author of three short story collections and three novels, including Infinite Jest and The Pale King, which was published posthumously in 2011 and was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. You can download more than 150 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast or subscribe to the podcast for free in the Apple Podcast section of the iTunes Store. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find The Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.